publish an article like that and, and the fact that this is supposed to be something that, that should be part of people's imagination or consciousness, I find that incredibly boring, you know? They're creating a very boring society, a society that has no fun, no joy, no eros, right? Like we mentioned in, in, in previous, you know, our, our previous conversations. Nothing to live for, in a way. Uh, that's not a life. That's not even an existence. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Asher. With me is Ricky Allpike. Ricky, you know, just how are you? I'm, I'm great, thanks. Uh, I'm excited because we've got one of our, uh, a friend of the show returning again, Amina Malonic. We love having her on and um, I'm pumped. Yes, we talked about a whole bunch of things, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, it's just, a, it's, it's always a, a free ranging delight. So let's get into it. New Flesh regular Amina Malonic is an adjunct fellow of the Center of American Greatness. She is an unabashed cinephile and holds a PhD in comparative literature and uh, three master's degrees in humanities and theology. Her work as a writer and critic has appeared in American Greatness, The Spectator, Law and Liberty, The New Criterion, The American Mind, National Review, and many more. Her last appearance on this show was in February 2023. That's episode 192 for those playing at home, where we discussed the death of Eros, amongst other things. Amina, welcome back to the New Flesh. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, Amina, you recently wrote about the speediness of William F. Buckley Jr.'s writing, uh, a piece that we saw online. Apparently, uh, he reportedly wrote his weekly column in 20 minutes. Uh, can you give us a, a bit of a crash course on on who uh, William F. Buckley was? So Buckley was a, uh, I guess you could call him a journalist. He was sort of a, a philosopher too, although most conservatives will not say that. I would say um, he was. Um, he started a National Review in 1955, I believe, and um, also had a television program called Firing Line. And what he would do is he would invite mostly, well, both conservatives and, and liberals on the show, and they would discuss ideas. Um, and the, the, the guests that he had, it was a wide variety, really. And I think it was only him that was able to really bring a, a complete radical leftist and try to have a conversation um, with that person. But he was very, very successful. Um, he wrote... Oh my goodness, how many books? Probably 30, 40 books. Um, and then after he, he moved away a little bit from politics um, and wrote spy novels as well. Um, lots of travel writing also. He, he sailed a, a lot, so a lot of his stuff is on, on uh, stories about sailing. So um, really kind of, I guess you could call him a, a father of the conservative movement in America. Um, and was most likely other conservative scholars probably have more, um, how should I put it, more um, clearer understanding on, on his political impact when it comes to Ronald Reagan's presidency. But he certainly, I think the, the, the flourishing of the conservative movement through William F. Buckley Jr. really happened, um, uh, the, the pinnacle of it really happened with Ronald Reagan being um, uh, elected. Has Buckley been cancelled? That's a good question. He's been ignored, I think. 
honestly. I think he's ignored. I think a lot of conservatives are, because conservatism in America doesn't even exist right now, I would say. It's, it's very fragmented. Um, it's been fragmented for a while now. And um, with Buckley, a lot of conservatives who have particularly worked with him think we can go back to that kind of conservatism in America, um, more intellectual conservatism. And so there's a kind of reverence or perhaps even worship of Buckley in that regard. Then you have younger generation who is completely ignoring him and saying we can't learn anything from Buckley. So I think you have these two um, two factions, uh, uh, generational probably mainly. Um, one is a boomer generation, the other one, well, I don't really know what, what to call them. Are they millennials perhaps? Maybe that's what it is. Maybe even younger than that. Um, who are saying we should just move, move on from that completely. It's time for a different kind of conservatism. So I'm, I, I love Buckley. He's one of my kindred spirits, if you will. I've, I've, I love his writing. He's a very, you know, very intelligent writer. And the reason I call him a philosopher is because he was never philosophically or metaphysically confused. He understood what the order of things is, and he brought that all of it into his discussions and also in his writing. And I think there's a lot to learn from him. No, we are not. People always say that, where's the next Buckley? Who's the new Buckley? You know, Buckley is unrepeatable. That sort of time era in America is really gone. I don't know. I still think that we can somehow blend in populist conservatism with intellectual, um, with intellectual tradition of conservatism. I don't think it's, it's not going to be easy, given everything that's going on. But um, I, I sort of am kind of in the middle of that position where I, I don't think that we can go back to it. But to deny the past and to say we can do this better... I, th I think that's very foolish. Was was Buckley important to you personally? You you mentioned I think you mentioned him in your first published piece in in National Review, and I, I when I was reading it, I thought about you, you know, coming from uh, from Bosnia, and you know, at what point you might have encountered his work, and whether he were, this kind of guy was, you know, influential to you. I I don't I honestly actually don't remember when was the first time I read him. I don't remember the moment. Uh, maybe a friend introduced me to his work, um, but it was at first actually it was mainly the firing line episodes. I read some of his stuff, some of the essays. I also I think read very early on Michael Oakeshott, who is one of my favorite philosophers, essay called on being conservative. And Oakeshott was a huge influence on Buckley. Um, it almost you know, he, he sort of started this whole idea that conservatism is a disposition and not an ideology. And um, Buckley definitely um, followed that principle. Um, and, um, but I liked, I liked his ease of, of um, relating to people on firing line, the way he would have conversations with, with somebody who is not only on a complete opposite political identity spectrum, but sometimes even radical people that are making no sense, <laughs> you know. And But he was able to somehow get something out of them. Uh, um, it, it was a, a civilized conversation because I don't think he would permit an uncivilized um, 
dialogue. And there's a, there's a fa- there's so many of those famous conversations. And one was with Hugh Hefner, which is from 1960, maybe very early on. And, um, you know, Buckley was always very, very calm. He took his time. I think he had kind of anxiety. So I think he purposely kind of slowed things down a little bit for himself. And, uh, didn't have any problem agreeing with his enemy, with the opposition, when, when he needed to agree. But he definitely uh, uh, destroyed Hefner's arguments, you know, for, um, uh, for Playboy and stuff like that. However, however, he did do an interview for Playboy. Buckley did do that <laughs> in 19, I think, is it a 1968? I don't remember. It's either late 70s or early, uh, late 60s or early 70s. He actually did an interview for Playboy, and uh, they said they asked him. They said, "How you know during the interview?" They said, "How how is it possible that you're actually you know here doing this interview?" And Buckley said, "Well, I think it's probably the only way my son is going to read my work." <laughs> <laughs> you got to go to where the readers are. It does sound as though uh, this sort of interview style is is quite refreshing. Uh, you know, when when you look at the kind of style that we have nowadays, that, that is very combative and combative to a point where quite often uh, different sides of the political spectrum just won't even come together to have any sort of discussion because they don't want that combative uh, situation. Um, you know, it just it just sounds you know it just sounds really refreshing to me. Yes, and I think people still share these episodes. You know, they watch them, they share them. Oh, look at this one! It's a classic, right? Everybody is very excited about it. And uh, Hoover Institution out of uh, 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 Stanford, Stanford, yes, I think so. Um, they have they have the archive of all firing line episodes. You can buy the DVDs. I have a few, but they're all available on YouTube. All these episodes, and um, they've been digitized, you know, restored. And I, I I think people go back to it because they actually do want to see. They want to see and hear a discussion about ideas, and. Um, you really don't get that now. Um, you get a lot of ideology. and But I think mostly the debates today, which I, I'm not really sure if you can call them debates, right? It's, I think it's a lot of uh, fear and a lot of yelling. And uh, I don't know if that's by, um, by design. Um, I'm not saying that none of this existed even in Buckley's um, time. Uh, there's a really fairly good documentary called best of enemies i don't know if you uh, either of you have seen it but it is about the uh, uh relationship or or not really a relationship but and certainly not a friendship between buckley and gore vidal and in 1967 i think don't quote me on the date but there was a democratic national convention and abc at that time asked Buckley and Vidal asked Buckley to cover it and to have a debate. And uh, he agreed to have this debate on it with Gore Vidal. And uh, there were 10 debates. Now, Vidal was a provocateur, and that's like putting it nicely, right? He was just a kind of a, a great writer, but a kind of a slimy human being. And so he pushed Buckley to that edge because Buckley was always very, very civilized. And by the 10th debate, he was, he started to call him um, names. So he called Buckley 
crypto-fascist, or crypto-Nazi, something like that. Sorry, I think it's crypto-Nazi. But I don't like it. Yes. <laughs> I, said, I, I don't know what it means, but I don't like it. <laughs> right. So, so he said, Buckley responded and said, uh, listen to me, you queer, you know, I'm going to punch you in the face, right? Which is just never, absolutely, it, it never, it, he regretted it for the rest of his life because he absolutely never did that. But Vidal pushed him to it. So there is that one moment, I think, in the media in the past where obviously the network wanted something, uh, some kind of controversy. And it, it did exist before. But I think that fo some a force like Buckley, you know, wouldn't, continue obviously to play into that but because firing line did just just fine even after that uh, that sort of slip up if you will so now in our podcast within a podcast side boob cinema we recently reviewed two films that were made very quickly the first being the fassbender film ali fear eats the soul as well as oliver stone's the doors uh, I think fassbender's film was shot in in about 14 days and the doors film was kind of rushed through post-production so that Oliver Stone could start working on on JFK. Uh, and, and both of these films have their flaws, but I think the reason why they're so special is that the directors didn't have time to endlessly think about the direction of the picture. Uh, you know, they just had to get it done. You know, they were working on instinct and, and didn't really have time to second-guess anything. Do you think that sometimes creating something quickly, whether that's, you know, film or writing or, or, or something else, uh, makes for better art? Maybe, yeah. I mean, there were so many great films that were made um, in a in a record time. Um, there was um, there's a there's a B movie. Well, it's considered a B movie called The Detour. It's a kind of a noir film, and I think it was made, I believe, in three weeks or something like that. And it's a really good film. So I think that, uh, yeah, I don't think necessarily. Um, taking taking too long um i suppose it depends on uh on the form right on the art form of what it is perhaps the movie takes longer i've never made a film but i would imagine that it's um uh, that it takes a lot more effort than writing a book or or certainly than writing an article um but you could also agonize over it right if if that's the um uh, that's the other side of it, that you can just constantly overthink it and then be left with a shell of a shell of a work, right? I, I think for film, particularly particularly at the start of the film, so so that in the writing stage and then possibly in in post production is where you can eat up a lot of time, just just back and forth, trying things out or second guessing yourself. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I but then if you rush it too too much, maybe you've missed something. I know that, for example. Uh, uh, the Back to the Future uh, trilogy, um, Robert Zemeckis said that because he was he was editing Back to the Future two while he was filming Back to the Future three, and you can spot you can you can tell that there's there's a lot of missing <laughs> things in number two, uh, and and I I think he'll be the first one to admit it. It was just it was just rushed. Um, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think it can happen depending on the artist. It, it, there's a there's a good interesting uh, current example of this. Another terrible film which I keep bringing up, and you know you never mention anything about it, which I really respect about Jermaine. It's called Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, they've been editing <laughs> this movie for 
but it seems like years and they've been apparently they shot it like a video game they just didn't know what they would do because there's no one person behind it there's just a creepy corporate cabal behind this this film they they, they have just shot all of this footage and now they've been editing and re-editing based on on sort of the hate rage tubers that have have, have commented about it so we get this interesting since you mentioned back to the future it got me thinking about spielberg and about this 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 example of you know what do you think of 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 that kind of thing of of, of editing ad infinitum and and reshooting and 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 it's still turning out with a silly film so they've been doing this for a while then this um indiana, indiana jones okay all right um well you know i i really the fact which which number this is number five uh, Indiana Jones. Yes, that's five, you're, right? you're given for not remembering. But yes, it is. Yes, number five. well, okay. <laughs> as long as, as far as I'm concerned, there is Indiana Jones one, two, and three, and the rest uh, we don't really care about. Um, like I, I love Harrison Ford, and then Indiana Jones is. I have such great memories of, of watching uh, those films when I was a kid, you know, in Bosnia, and uh, that uh, it doesn't even matter to me if they're a little bit. Uh, sloppy in some areas or whatever and they are but it, it just doesn't matter but this once they started making once they went into um four and now with this it just makes no sense to me i i love harrison ford but and if he i, I saw an interview with him the other day and he said he really enjoyed it and i'm and i mean i'm glad he did but at the same time i'm not sure whether we should be subject to that what? and from go ahead He's, cha- he's changed his tune there because back in the day he he couldn't stop moaning on about how much he hated Han Solo, and I, I don't know if it was the same for Indiana Jones, but he just he despised some of these these lovable roles that 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 people grew up with. Yes, he can be quite cantankerous, right? He's kind of yeah, he's kind of a cranky guy, which is maybe part of his charm. You know, he doesn't have any patience for idiocy, and uh, but at, at at the same time. Um, you know, crankiness can, once crankiness leaves the charming, you know, sphere, then it's, he's just a grumpy old man. Right. Um, so but from what I understand, also, the fact that he's, the fact that he's more accepting now, it sort of feels like, you know, cause I liked it when he was, you know, doing witness and, you know, presumed innocent, you know, working with, you know, trying to do drama and, and really branching out in the eighties, working with Polanski, you know, like, right. And, uh, and and then these other these and sort of this attitude of all these silly films and the fact that now that he's doing these these uh, nostalgia bait films and, and it sort of feels like he's just feeling like someone's going to turn the lights off any second now and he's getting really maudlin and 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 he's it, and and he's lost that thing and and that's why he's he's just doing these these embarrassing retirement home versions of these old characters and putting us all through it and. Oh, man, I miss those. We talk about we talked about um, intellectuals, you know, Buckley having his show, but I miss Harrison Ford on these chat shows, like just saying, uh, like he just had no time for it. Can, can bring me back that guy. I'm sick of the. I hate it when our artists become. I'm going to swear now. I may not. They become such pussies. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, because I I always thought of Harrison Ford as a kind of guy who doesn't suffer any fools, right? He just uh, that's that's what I certainly respect or respected in him, you know, and and uh, 
I, I, I liked him, for example, in What Lies Beneath. That is a perfect movie in every way. And, uh, you know, I wish he would do perhaps more stuff like that. Now, he is facing, how old is he, 80, 81, something like that, right? 80. Um, yep. 80, right. So he is uh, uh, in a bonus round, I guess you could say. Um, so he's facing his mortality, and I can't even imagine, you know. But but um, I, it's still, you know, you can still do deep deeper things um than maybe this i i don't it, but they asked him in this interview it was one of those morning shows abc morning shows with george stephanopoulos you know one of those mainstream things and uh, they asked him what will he the, the questions first of all were so mind-numbingly stupid and you can tell that uh, ford was really irritated by it and i don't blame him in that sense <laughs> but uh um, they asked him, what will he miss most about this character, meaning Indiana Jones? And, uh, and he just stood, you know, sat there in silence and there was a kind of very uncomfortable silence. And then he said, nothing. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> That's perfect. So I, I think so. Actually, it kind of, I, I saw a, a, a bit of that passion there. So I think that was really good. I mean, he did praise everybody's work on it, um, and meaning that they all worked very hard and there was a sense of friendship or blah, 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 you know, stuff like that, which is great, you know, um, but I, I don't that. know. I, no, I hate that. I mean, I don't care how hard they worked. I, 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 I want it to be <laughs> an amazing, you <laughs> You don't care about friendship. What kind of a person are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I care about it in... I, you know, it's that, it's, it's that old thing, you know, like I, I, I think I've got more of a Werner Herzog attitude about it where it's just like, I want it to have destroyed the world, but, but, but it to have been a good film. Yes. Yes. See, you live for art and, uh, there, there you go. No, I, I mean, I'm sometimes I'm too nice, I think, you know, so I shouldn't, I, my, my tolerance for a lot of these things is too high. Perhaps I need to be a little more. Uh, a little more like you, I should just say, no, this is stupid, you know, we don't <laughs> care. But no, I mean, I, I, yes, sure, I'm, I'm glad, but at the same time, why are we subject to this, I guess, you know, and, uh, and also there are no great personalities. I mean, when you think about, um, you know, great actors, when you think about Indiana Jones uh, with Sean Connery, I mean, that's a great movie. You know, because you have these, uh, you know, strong actors that are um, living a very much embodied life. And I think that's really what's sort of missing from today. So any sort of um, adventure, action adventure movie, um, I think it will be missing that component. As much as Harrison Ford is a very masculine man, he still looks like a man, um, I think that the the essence of today's age is denying that, and it will do anything, even maybe unintentionally, to um, uh, d deny or to to move us away from from that sort of you know embodiment. So, obviously, I haven't seen this one. Is it's it's not available yet, right? It's in the theaters later. I I don't remember when. I saw the trailer. Oh, no, it hasn't for come it. out yet, but it got that hasn't it got come out. Dreadful. Unreviews uh, just came oh, out, really? I think, okay. uh, and it's okay. been roasted by 
even some fairly woke publications. Oh, wow. Okay. So, bad movie. <laughs> so, what's this space? <laughs> <laughs> well, on, on a somewhat related topic here, Amina, I'm, I'm not sure if you saw this fake article that was published in the Irish Times recently. So, basically, they, they published an opinion column titled, Irish Women's Obsession with Fake Tan is Problematic, which uh, was created, I believe, by a student prankster using the AI platform ChatGPT. Uh, now, the Irish Times later apologised, but but not about the content of the article, but for how lax their protocols were for for journalists submitting work to their publication. Now, um, you know, this is a pretty funny story, but it does highlight how easy it is to pop in some keywords and have an article written for you fairly quickly. Do you think we'll have to start vetting everything we read for fear it was written by Chat uh, Chat GPT? GPT maybe maybe well we should be aware of 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 the reputations of people right we should be aware they've done this bef before with uh, academic uh, journal articles where they've just uh, it wasn't this uh, what is it called chat GPT right um, it it wasn't with that it was with some other program and they just uh, you know. Uh, published an article under an assumed name. It was basically a group of people, and uh, it, it made no sense. I mean, it made sense in the academic world, right, because everything is gibberish. Um, and so, um, so it's been done before, right, and in this case, a little bit less intellectually minded. But uh, um, no, I, I actually think that everybody is too, uh, too relaxed about these things. Something comes up on Twitter or any other platform, people immediately think it's true. They never really say, okay, who posted this? Why did they post it? Um, um, where's this video from? Is this video from, from 10 years ago or is this from 10 minutes ago, as they're claiming? Um, so you really, I think, have to be uh, very much um, aware of, of several layers, I think, of reality when, you are, when you're reading these things and, and, and watching them. And I read this article in the Irish Times, and, and uh, so... I, I think it's, I think actually, you know, that's what gets you for even publishing an article like that, to be honest with you. It's, it's almost like, why would, you, why would a, a, a reputable publication even talk about tan, I guess, you know, I mean, it, it, it's pathetic, right? But but these these are the kind of stories that that you're seeing pop pop up a lot though. I mean, there there are endless articles out there, particularly on the Guardian, that that say stuff like, oh, you know, we've got a whiteness problem, or you know, so and so right. has a problem with you know cultural appropriation, or you know, talking about um, kimonos, talk, or we need to talk about yeah kimonos, or we need to talk yeah. about uh, I don't know eyeliner or something. Eyeliner. <laughs> Is, well, is that what you said? I, I don't know. That's next, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they they would probably claim that some indigenous tribe out there invented eyeliner or something. And if you're oh, a white right. person wearing eyeliner, it's just cultural then, appropriation. Ricky, Ricky is like you know. the chat GPT of wokeness. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. He knows. He knows you could write the article. <laughs> but I feel like these articles would be so easy to write, though, you know, like, because you only have to go so far back in history before you get to a point where you can kind of ascribe a certain style of fashion or music or whatever it is to a particular race or country. And then, bam, there you go. There's your there's your problematic article that you can pop up on the Irish Times, you know. But I'm, I'm just surprised that this, was, this wasn't a bigger story, you know, that the fact that it was so easy to write the article... The, the fact that the article 
uh, is 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 almost indistinguishable from all those other woke articles that you see out there. What's the point you know? of right. the Guardian article that wrote about this article? Like that's what I want to know. Like so, the Guardian wrote a a report. Well, I guess we would say they reported on this story. <laughs> so I, I I'm confused as to why the Guardian would even report on this story because the thing is. It seemingly the, the the article that that the, the the fake article resembles a lot of their uh, articles for starters, and um, I don't know is this like a weird UK Ireland thing sticking it to the Irish or something? I I, I, I was so <laughs> I thought it was really strange. You know, I really think that we are wasting so much time, or these these news outlets, whatever, they're wasting so much time focusing on these nitty-gritty um, uh, fake problems you know I, I still think what what this is is an overabundance of uh, uh, of safety in a way and of um, uh, wealth I, I think these are really sort of a first world invented issues um, and I, I do think that we are at the point in our society until all of this started kind of breaking in a way into chaos, we were at the point where people are generally, for the most part, not poor. You're able to, you know, live a good life. Um, you are um, fairly safe. You know, everybody, obviously, this is generally speaking, right? Uh, you know, there are many different circumstances. But um, there's just, there, there's a, there, there came a, a point, I think, where um, we are, you could say, somewhat enlightened in how we relate to each other. And then all these ideologues thought to themselves, hmm, you know what, there's not enough chaos in the world. Why don't we just do some of that right now and just come up with issues that don't even exist? Um, I don't know. I, I, I find that to be a first world problem you know it's really not a problem right they've made it into a problem but uh to even publish an article like that and and the fact that this is supposed to be something that that should be part of people's imagination or consciousness i find that incredibly boring you know they're creating a very boring society a society that has no fun no joy no arrows right like we've mentioned in in, in previous you know our, our previous conversations um, nothing to live for, in a way. Uh, that's not a life. That's not even an existence, I think. Well, we spoke to Spencer Claven recently. It was an absolutely fascinating discussion. And one of the ideas he, he uh, sort of hatched uh, is this idea of the furniture of the mind. We asked him about his memorization, monthly memorization of poetry and, and why he does that. And he said he's trying to create uh, or trying to to curate the furniture of his mind, he would rather be able to recall lines of John Donne and and Keats, uh, at, you know, in 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 moments of, um, uh, you know, just in moments between moments, rather than conjuring up cat videos and fight videos and and snippets of porn and sort of this, uh, and and you've talked about this before as well. This this idea of getting lost in the in the slipstream of of nonsense on 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 your social media feed, so it just becomes it even it it, it sort of it, it it melds everything from yeah cat videos and images of of Roma films to just like 
a snatch of music and then just someone getting beaten to death on a, on a train in New York or something. And it becomes this totally meaningless, uh, space that you're, you're, you're living in. And so uh, what do you think about this idea of the furniture of your mind? I like that. Spencer is great. He's a, he's a really, he's a great thinker and he's also a really nice guy. <laughs> um, I know, you know, he probably will not want me to say that because he has a reputation to keep up, you know, but, uh, but, uh, I've, I've met him uh, once and, uh, you know, just a, a really decent kind person. So everything that he says, uh, it's not just intellectual, uh, um, you know, in intellectual theories or theorizing, he definitely is like that in action as well. Um, so, but I, I, I agree. I really do agree with that. I think it's amazing, you know, what, what he does with, with the memorization. I could never, certainly could never do that. Uh, but he, in, in many ways is invoking the ancients, right. By, by doing that, that's how things were done. Also, they were, they were given, um, orally you know they were moved from one generation to to the other in in such a way through this oral tradition so um but yes i don't think that we think about how we are spending our time um if we are opening up a book reading something or or i don't know cleaning a bathroom honestly it can be it can be extremely ordinary things and sometimes that's even better you know um where you are kind of laboring in a good way, right? Every, every single day. I mean, I, I fail, you know, I, I try to do it as much as I can. But I think just to be aware of, of how this time is spent. And the bigger question, I think, is how is the time, who is the time being controlled by? You know, is it the phone opening it up and then scrolling through this feed? And, uh, you know, like you said, the, the fact that you can see maybe um, something great like a, a, a movie still from, you know, on, on Twitter and then suddenly a couple of more, more scrolls and, uh, you know, you see somebody getting beaten up in New York subway. It's so disturbing, you know. I, I, don't, I, I, I don't understand what the purpose of posting this is unless this person has been arrested and something has actually happened, I don't understand what the purpose of everyone else seeing this. And I, I do think, I maintain been, my position. It is like we're living in Videodrome. Yes, it is like Videodrome. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've never seen that. Yes, yes. I've never seen that film, but I, I've, I've, I've heard so much about it. Uh, yes, it's, it's, it's this, it's, it's chaos, you know, and I, and I think that people are unable to distinguish, it, you know, between reality and, and this you know, virtual, um, violence. I, I, but I don't see what the point is of, for, for us to see that. And I've said this before where I don't think that people are able to mentally, they don't have mental stamina to be aware of everything all the time. This makes zero sense to me. And I've, I, I love Jaron Lanier or Jaron Lanier. I forget how to, pronounce his name but i don't know if you guys know about him he's a kind of he's considered the father well, yes, of virtual I've, I've reality read his book, Ten Arguments. yes Ten, was it an argument through your social media today it's an incredible yes book. incredible and also you are not a gadget that's an earlier one and you know he 
said recently something because everybody's talking about AI. Have you noticed that everything now is AI? You know, like on Twitter, AI did this and AI did that. And there's pizza commercials created by AI. The AI is coming for you and they're going to give you fake synthetic pizza. I mean, this is so silly, right? I I, I just don't understand. And and people were afraid. They're like, look, the, the robots are coming for us. That's it. We are done. We will become slaves. And I'm thinking to myself, you already are a slave to this corporate machine if you are believing this nonsense, you know. But uh, Lanier said something interesting about this. He doesn't think that there is such a thing as artificial intelligence, that it's impossible to even create it because there's nothing intelligent about it in a sense. And um, he had, had said to, to say that something will be more intelligent than human is a contradiction because it's created by a human being. So there's, there's no possibility that you will have a more intelligent being than the human being, right? Uh, meaning artificial being, right? And um, he thinks that all of what's going on right now, th- these, these sort of dystopian thoughts about uh, um, androids or whomever, you know, taking over, that these are just science fiction fantasies. Um, that a lot of the creators of computer guys, really, that, that have been doing this, have their own little fantasies. And he definitely, you know, shuts that down. But one thing that's interesting that he said, and I really agree with, is that the notion, this notion of transhumanism and AI, uh, he talks about annihilation of humanity, not through AI, but through humanity. He thinks that we are unable to actually communicate with each other anymore. And if we do annihilate the human race, it will be through insanity, through the fact that we will not be able to speak to one another anymore. And I find that more plausible, frankly, than being killed off by a machine. Um, so he, I think I find him to be the voice of reason in all of this, um, in all of this discussion of artificial intelligence or, or whatever they want to call it. Um, because we need... You know, where can computers really work? Where can they really be helpful? Are they tools or are they, are they something else, right? I think these are good philosophical questions. But to live in fear, um, I don't know. I, I don't know if you have, if you have seen this, this AI-created pizza commercial when it came out. Oh, yeah, I've seen it, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It it's, was... It's, weird. it's weird looking. It's strange. Is, is Dylan Mulvaney in it? Or... <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, no. <laughs> then you're not watching it, John. Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, I just want to know. So, well, so what happens in the commercial? Oh, it's not just families like eating pizza, and it it it's sort of it is an older style looking like sort of like Pizza Hut sort of a commercial where people are eating families are around eating eating pizza inside the the restaurant. I think. Yes, and it's called what is it called? Uh, pizza Hug something. I don't remember now. See, I forgot. But it's really weird because the way oh, it was created. Images now it looks terrifying. It's awful. It's really yeah. bizarre because people are going. They're eating uh, people. I mean, these are just sort of images created, right? They're when they're when they're eating the pizza. It looks like they're eating their own chin. It just looks so strange. And um, <laughs> so it it was Again, it was. Cronenberg couldn't have directed a better commercial. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, but I was I was struck by the reactions of people uh, of to this, as if the immediate reaction from from many on on Twitter was fear, 
that we will be overtaken by this thing and um, that we will be made, what, obsolete? And then somebody after that made a, um, a kind of a great Gatsby um, uh, movie all created by a computer. I hate it when they say that, though, because it isn't. A human being had to input certain information in order to have get something spit back at them, right? So it really isn't created. Uh, you know, the computer cannot create out of nothing, ex nihilo, right? Only God creates out of nothing. So, so to think that that um, we can create out of nothing is is, is crazy. But to, to think that a computer can do it is even crazier. Um, I feel like we are moving actually backwards in time, if if that makes sense. We have stopped progressing. I recently watched Kubrick's 2001: Space Odyssey, and I haven't seen it in decades i think actually i have seen it only once when i was probably nine or ten years old and at that point i couldn't possibly understand it you know the way i would today and i was quite terrified of those apes and all of that at the beginning and um i really was but anyway we we watched it and it was beautiful it was just absolutely so human and so beautiful, the whole thing. It was so moving. And my, my six-year-old son watched it as well, and he absolutely loved it. He was, he was not afraid of the apes the way I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they, they sort of look charmingly fake in a way now when, they, when, they when, do. You, when yeah. you look at those. It's almost like Planet of the Apes, you know. It's like Yes, yes. I mean, I couldn't obviously understand it when I was 10 or 9 or whenever I saw it, but um, it was an image that sort of burned in my memory. Um, but the, what, what struck me about that is it's supposed to take place obviously really, really far away into the, into the future. Um, and you know, the question being, what is our relation to this, to this computer, to this HAL, right? Uh, that is, um, wreaking havoc on, on, for these, for these, um, um, astronauts, but what struck me mostly about the film is that we are actually not progressing into anything right now. I think we are regressing existentially, metaphysically, in every aspect. Because um, if you look at the examples of what actually is going on, we are moving away further and further from the question of what it means to be human. And we are arguing about tan right you know something <laughs> a made up article about tan and and i i never really would have guessed that we would be at the point in our society where we are talking about what is male and what is female biologically speaking how absolutely crazy this is right so to me uh arguing about those things i would say equals regression well, perhaps one thing that uh, AI can't do, and you've written about this film, maybe we can bring this into into the discussion as well. There is no way an AI uh, entity could create Ken Russell's Crimes of Passion. <laughs> no. <laughs> Definitely not. China Blue. You know, there's just no, there's just no way that, I mean, the... the it would it's too kinky for any machine out there 
oh, a machine would like blow up or something. Just seeing Kathleen Turner, it wouldn't know, it wouldn't know what <laughs> to do crime. with her. <laughs> but yes, I would love to know what you think of Crimes of Passion and Ken Russell for that matter. Well, I've, I, I will be writing about it, but I can certainly uh, uh, talk about it as well. Uh, he did Women in Love, right? If I remember correctly. Ken Russell. Right. right. Okay. So I saw that uh, a, a while ago when I was um, working on my bachelor's degree. I wrote, a, wrote my thesis on D.H. Um, Lawrence on Women in Love. And uh, I saw the movie as well. And I remember thinking the movie was quite dated actually it's it's sort of stuck in its own sort of 70s um you know um essence but i really did think differently about crimes of passion it's a very strange film uh and i and i read roger ebert's review of it today from nine from when it came out and uh it was a terrible review actually he just dismissed the film as silly as as you know um um, Ken Russell not knowing how to do sex scenes or something like that along those lines and he said it was just stupid and I really think it's a brilliant movie I think it represents a certain window into several different worlds one created by perhaps Georges Bataille and Marquis de Sade uh, another created by love so I I think the way he brings those things together in the film, the way Russell brings those things together. Um, yes, only a human being could create that, that's for sure. Um, it's, it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting really exploration of what constitutes Eros, the erotic, and what's, what's the difference between how connected is, is violence to sex. And, and it definitely, uh, you can see, not in, in you can see maybe um, traces of that in Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, uh, particularly because it deals with same marriage. Yes, right? Did you say same ending? Yes, yeah. It just, it's, it's almost uh, the same beat at the very end. Completely. That's exactly what I thought, yes. And there's a kind of almost cheekiness about it when he looks, because he looks right in the camera, um, you know, at the end yeah, there so you, actually you know there's a million reasons why these types of films because you know to give people a bit of context if they haven't seen it it's a it's an erotic thriller from the mid 80s can it's it's it, it just looks like it was i don't know made in some sort of coke frenzy uh, 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 that, uh, at the time and i feel like you know it, 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 it we the idea of an erotic thriller today is completely uh, uh, beyond the pale. I just don't think you, you you could imagine that because we've talked about this before, maybe in different different uh, podcasts, like the idea of sex now being completely transactional or sterile or this this you know. And I'm not taking anything away from from assault and all that stuff, but this obsession with with consent, this obsession with consent, because. I feel like if you showed crimes of passion to someone, all they would talk about is consent, and you'd go, "Yeah, there's some other things going on in the film, you know." Like, but I feel like that would completely dominate and flatten the thing. And then the the person would be in their their review to you would be tr like, rather than talk about the the transgressive elements in it and 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 how outrageous it was or whatever, they would just say, "Oh, well, you know, uh, that's not it wasn't very appropriate," and that's that it's a conversation killer now. It Right. Yes, it wasn't appropriate, and that would be the end of it. And uh, but in reality, I think the movie 
the movie really uh, deals with with this in my opinion these notion this notion of masks and Bataille talked about that and ma- the idea of a mask obviously is is a great metaphor i i wrote a lot about that actually for my uh, phd dissertation i was primarily what my dissertation was about it was on eros and um and really what what to me what to, the film uh is is showing there's a particularly one scene where Kathleen Turner. So she is a she's a designer, right? By during the day, and then during the night, she she is China Blue, this uh, prostitute. And I love the the aesthetic difference also between the sort of red, almost like red light district type of you know place uh, where she is she is a, a working girl, and then you have this almost almost white sterile environment, right, where she is uh, in her apartment um, uh, as, as a designer. But um, there's a there's a split of identity there, obviously. But there was something very real about it, despite the fact that there are these fantasies that are going on, these men that come to her, and uh, and then of course Anthony Perkins um, as the fake preacher. Uh, who's trying to save her soul by what murdering her? Right, that's what he's trying to do. But we we know at the end there who he's really trying to free himself, and who he, who is he anyway? Another pervert, right? Um, so I think that the the film is primarily you've worked about out the best bit. I mean, you've 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 buried, you've buried the lead. He's trying to kill her with a handmade uh, metallic um, member. <laughs> <laughs> I believe. <laughs> Like like a, a custom made knife like <laughs> dildo. Yes, yes, it was. <laughs> that was quite interesting. Yes, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I, I I I'm trying to I'm trying to keep this very proper and appropriate. You know, I don't want any to trigger anybody. So oh, sorry, really, sorry. That's, I, that's what I'm trying to do here. But yeah, no, I, I think the film really is about these split identities and, um, you know, where does where does Eros or where does sex belong into that in these split identities? And I think particularly the, there, there are several very, very touching scenes, I think. One is when when um, she gets um, uh, um, she goes to the house. Um, a woman stops her. Right. She's she, uh, on the street there and says, can you come over? My husband is sick. He's dying. He, I, I can't even, you know, do anything with him. Can you just, you know, go over there and, and do your thing, please? And uh, she, she comes in. She's in her, in her china blue outfit, right? She's 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 sort of starting to give him these sort of cliched, uh, you know, pseudo erotic, you know, expressions in in you know, uh, sort of a very very cheesy porno thing, you know, going on. Um, and the man is sick, clearly, right? He is just on his deathbed, and he rejects it, you know, in a very sort of human way. And she recognizes his humanity at that point. She sits down with him. He gives her. He tells her his name, right? And uh, and she says, "I am Joanna." She takes off her wig, and to me, that was a really beautiful moment, actually, because she is taking off that mask. She's being a human being. And if you notice, actually, when she comes into his room, she's being very sexy and very sultry, right, in that sort of role play. And when she's leaving, there's something almost limp about her body. She doesn't have her wig on. She doesn't have her dress on. Um, 
her lingerie is kind of hanging on, you know, she's sort of, she's sort of a very sad woman in a way, but a very human. So that's why I don't think the movie is, I think it's a very underrated movie. I, I, I honestly, there's some strange stuff, but I didn't, I've seen, I've seen stranger movies that were also extremely voyeuristic. I, I kept thinking about Cronenberg's Crash. Well, that's a screwed up movie. And I can understand the Death Drive and Freud and Bataille and all of those things. But I always got the feeling that Cronenberg was really a voyeur in this movie, uh, that he was, you know, getting off on it. And I, and I, and I, I didn't like that. I think that's what it was. With Russell, I felt like he really was kind of just separated as a filmmaker from this. And I, I do appreciate that. But there is, yeah, there is. A, and even the moment, the, the very moving moments between um, Bobby and his wife when they're when they're in bed and he's trying to you know he's not just trying to have sex with her right he's really trying to have intimacy with her and he even tells her that um and she still rejects him so she's rejecting his entire being right so um but anyway i i thought the film was was I mean, it just seems like the causes and conditions that created Ken Russell are long gone, and 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 it actually seems like there's guardrails put in place to stop people like him even existing at all. So, you know, because at the end of the day, we know that big time artists like him, they don't say nice things all the time. Like if you've ever heard David Lynch uh, behind the scenes or videos of him on set, he's screaming and yelling. He's saying "fuck that, fuck you." Who cares how right. who, who cares how long the fucking scene is and you know, he's he's just like, you know, sort of a tyrant, and and um, you know, and in a world where you need to watch your mouth, this is sort of death to these kinds of artists. Because I mean, we even see it with our heroes. We go on about this. Like, I am staggered by the silence of Martin Scorsese and everyone else. I am just blown away that they will not say anything about about how stupid this this prevailing ideology, this anti art ideology is out there because you know and what and the, the net result is that we get very bland movies but then you know these guys have got to sort of trick their way into making movies like if ken russell was around now who knows maybe he'd have to do what they all do which is find an identity politics way into the story like make it about native americans or make it about like i don't know some so just find a way in and then say okay now that i've or just say endlessly say latinx like Spielberg <laughs> and then go, okay, maybe they'll let me direct the movie now. And then, you know, it's just such a pathetic way of going about it. They think. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's a very cowardly, unmasculine way of, of, uh, you know, way of, of doing things, especially certainly if the director is a man, it's even, it's even worse. Um, yes. I, I, and you know, where's the imagination? I mean, reject or accept a movie based on its, aesthetics and based on its merit um you know make the movie that you want to make write the book that you want to write and then um uh, the the rest of the rest of the people can either reject it or accept it but it has to be accepted or rejected based on what it is not whether it hit the right ideology or it didn't or or whatever you know i can't even imagine actually how would people react to something like crimes of passion right now um it, it, we it's talk about a... this all the time we, when, when we re, we review these movies we always say you know could you play this on a campus could you could you play it for 
normal people? Could you put it on somewhere? Could you project it somewhere? And what, what would the reaction be? What, what would, would people know what they're looking at? Would they, how would they respond? Would they, would people get angry? Would they assault you? Would they burn the place down <laughs> or would they not care? Which, there's, there's all sorts of cases where we convinced they wouldn't care because they wouldn't, because these people, they don't watch, they don't watch movies. They don't watch good movies. They don't, they don't watch fear, Ali, fear, it's the soul. They don't watch anything like this or if they they would rather complain about it and try and get it bad and make sure that there's a trigger warning before it before rather than actually watch it and engage with this oh, right right yeah please tell me what the trigger warning is so i can then make a decision whether i want to watch it or not um i know i i don't I, of course i completely disagree with that. that that's just that sounds crazy to me to have a trigger warning. I don't even know what that means, you know? Either live your life or don't live your life. You know, I, I think really that's, that's what it comes down to. D d you know, why are people so content with uh, living a half-life? Um, and it, it seems to me, in any case, um, and maybe, you know, somebody like Camille Paglia would, would, would agree with this. I think uh, she sort of talks about a lot of this in sexual personae, is that, if, if there is no erotic drive at all, then I think we're all doomed. And I, I, I am not surprised, you know, at the, at the way the society is right now, given the fact that um, everyone has overnight become such a prude uh, where what you are not, a, the only thing that's acceptable, if you notice, the only thing that's acceptable is to be fearful and violent. And um, and maybe that proves Bataille's point or or point of Wilhelm Reich, who talked about ideology and 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 I mean Reich was a was was a crazy guy. He did some strange things, but I think that as, as did Bataille. But I guess maybe they're right in the sense that people are getting a release from ideology rather than from sex or from eros or from from uh, uh or, or from encounter with other people um is there is you you, you really just kind of want to say to them is there nothing that excites you do you not have passion for anything at all um and uh, to me that's very very sad extremely well, I mean, we're very mindful of time. Uh, we can we could chat to you all day about all all these different topics, particularly cinema. We'd love to talk to you about cinema. Um, I, I wanted to ask you briefly about your Substack. Uh, it's called The Magic Lantern. Maybe you could uh, let our listeners know what that is. And I, I believe you've added something called Friday Frames. Can can you tell us about that? Uh, yes. Um, uh, thank you so much for mentioning that. I just have to keep up after it. Um, <laughs> So the Substack is aminamalonic.substack.com. It's called the Magic Lantern, and uh, what I'm so I post my articles there, but I'm also trying to have this little section called Friday Frames, as you said, and uh, where I uh, recommend a movie every Friday. Um, do a little bit of a, a write-up, nothing, nothing major, just why the movie matters to me and what the film is about, and and what I try to do um, uh, is try to find. A film that is available, uh, preferably for free. But if it's not, it's not. You know, so that people can see it. So uh, I think that's important too. But um, yeah, so that's and I'm on Twitter. Uh, same Twitter handle is Amina Milanic, just my name. So um, people can look up my work like that too. So but I, I write a weekly column for American Greatness, 
and usually a weekly column for, for Splice today and, and other places too. So, Excellent. Well, everyone should check that out. And um, one of the missions we have on this show is we're trying to get people to read more. Uh, and I've actually started in, in, in sort of in my personal life asking people if they're reading anything at the moment. Um, so How's not just asking on this podcast. It actually is not going too badly, actually. I'm surprised that people are reading something. It's not usually the kind of books that I think they should be reading, but that's okay. I think if, if you're just reading full stop, I think you're ahead of the game. So uh, this is a question, as you know, we ask all of our all of our guests, and we'd like to know what you're reading right now, Amina. Uh, well, I try to read things. I read so much for, for the reviews that I'm doing. So, and that sometimes feels like work. So I really try to uh, read something before I go to bed that's completely you know, unrelated to work. And I picked up a book um, a, um, a few days ago by Pearl Buck, a peony. Is, is that how you is that how you pronounce it? Tell me, peony, the, the flower, right? Yes. I don't know. I'm embarrassed. No, I mean, I'm not embarrassed. I, I is that how know. you pronounce it? Okay. So the film, the film, the film. See, I'm already thinking about only the film. Anyway, the, the, the book is um, uh, just like most of her books, uh, takes place in China. So, and it's about... Um, this uh, servant girl who is working in a Jewish family in China. So, um, so far, it's, it's really good. I mean, I just, I just wanted to read something that's completely, you know, unrelated to anything that I'm doing right now. <laughs> no culture war stuff. No, no, I, I've, I can't. I also, I, I have a terrible habit of being distracted. And so... Um, I, I have I start too many books, and uh, they get finished. But I, I just, uh, what's the next shiny thing? And then I just forget about the other. It's a terrible habit. It's awful. I don't know how I write anything at all. I'll be honest with you. It's, uh, you know, but it's not a computer. The computer is not writing <laughs> my articles. It is all. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, it's 100% you. It's not ChatGPT churning out this Definitely stuff. Definitely not. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Arena, for catching up with us again. And, and you know, please send us through your Crimes of Passion uh, article. Can't wait. Uh, and I'm so glad we got to talk about that, among other things today. Absolutely. I'm, I always love talking to you both. It's, it's always such a pleasure. And uh, I'm just as glad you invite me every time. So that's great. Excellent. Well, we'll see you next time. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.